I wanted a new challenge and I realized that I need to be open to opportunities so that I don't lose my motivation. When a client tells you what their goals are, you realize if they're a good match for you. I'm not really a big fan of finding a very narrow niche for yourself. I think that critical thinking is a skill that AI hasn't developed yet. No matter how good your strategy or your roadmap is today, you have to think of it as a living document. I think that this was the strongest red flag. And that's okay. That's how things work. This is marketing today. It's an important investment. It does take time, but it pays off in the long run. Hey there, real quick. If you enjoyed the show, please support by following on your favorite podcast station, review and share it with your peers to help them and me out because I don't run any ads and every share helps. Thanks and let's jump into it. Hey, Adriana, welcome. Hey, Gabe. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Where are you recording from since we always record these episodes online? Right now I'm recording from Bucharest. This is my home base. I move around quite a bit, but you'll usually find me in Bucharest or somewhere on an island. That's awesome. Also, speaking of islands, I'm recording currently from the beautiful island of Bali in Indonesia. But you make me feel homesick since I'm from Romania as well. Glad to have another Romanian in my show. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Glad to have you. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm Adriana Tico. I run a digital marketing agency. At my core, I'm a marketing strategist. I also run a strategy newsletter called Ideas to Power Your Future. But with all these businesses and, and different things I manage, I think it's important to say that I never really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I pretty much fell into it because at some point, eight or nine years ago, I had a lot of trouble finding a job that suited me and uh, I decided to create my own. I started with the, the skills I knew I could rely on, the skills I relied on for my entire professional life, writing and marketing strategy. And from a freelancer, I morphed into an agency owner. And now I believe the right label for me is solopreneur because um, I do most of the work myself. I have a remote team as well, but with zero full-time employees, I think I qualify as a solopreneur. It's an ever-changing label for me, but uh, I've grown to be okay with it because I realize that I don't have to do the same thing for my entire professional life. You know, I can switch things around. Thanks for sharing that. Indeed, that's the thing with uh, titles. They are ever-changing and they are intersecting in names. I love the definition that you have for solopreneurs because it's the same that I use. Even that some might call us entrepreneurs since we use remote team like contractors or such to outsource work. But in essence, since they are not full-time employee, we are basically solopreneurs. And uh, you mentioned that you used to have an agency. And how did you transition from that to basically scaling down because in the true sense of the word an agency is something like focus on growth and such why did you move from that to solopreneurship well i still have my agency i still run it let me dial back a bit and tell you that back when i started as a freelancer on freelancer platforms I started getting more work than I could handle. I think you know the story. It's a pretty common one. And I started looking for people to help me, for people to outsource some of my work to. And my agency started to grow bit by bit. This is when I started to make mistakes. I grew very fast. So I started onboarding clients that were a bad fit. I also started onboarding writers that were a bad fit. In a few short months, I had more work than I could handle. I had more money than I ever dreamed that I could make within a year. 
but I was completely trained and I was working with the wrong type of client and the wrong type of, of contractor. So I scaled back a bit. This was back in 2018, I think. I scaled back a bit. I fired some clients. I fired some, I fired some workers. And I started to restructure things and, and create better buyer personas and better ideal customer profiles. This is when things started to settle down a bit and I was back on track because my agency's deadline was grand results boutique approach. But, you know, we kind of let go of both of these promises when we started onboarding clients that mostly wanted content mill work and hundreds of articles churned per month and so on. After that episode, we no longer worked with more than 10 to 12 clients in a month. I kept my team small and always remote. And last year, I decided that I wanted more than my agency work. I wanted to have my own <clears throat> place on the internet that's under my own name. And I wanted to write about things that are interesting to me and things that I'm passionate about. I wanted to write about building a real strategy, not building a business on growth hacks. So this is how Ideas to Power Your Future was born. And to build my newsletter and to build a community around it, I had to scale back a bit on, on my agency work. I still have it. We still onboard new clients. I still work with my old clients, but I'm not that focused on growing it and on promoting it as I was. But I have to say that it's a bit challenging to juggle two different things at the same time. I'm sure you know how that feels. <laughs> yeah, I can relate for sure. And before discussing that part, because I think it's something that a lot of people can relate, I want to discuss a bit the structure of your agency since building something that is usually focused on growth, as you experience yourself, can be extremely overwhelming, especially when you say yes to every type of client. How did you realize that a client wasn't a good fit and how did you manage to choose those you want to work with? Because narrowing down and trying quote unquote niche, it's quite a challenge for most. Well, my first cue was the work volume. We did a lot of work in content writing and copywriting. And uh, usually when you run a resilient business, a sustainable business, you don't need to churn out a hundred articles per week, you know? You don't need that unless you're building an affiliate website or something like that. This is not the type of work I wanted to handle. The second cue was realizing that the quality of our work had to suffer. We couldn't possibly churn out that many articles and that many landing pages without harming the quality of the work. And I think that this was the strongest red flag. Also, my talks with clients, I used to work with clients who are very, very focused on results. And this is what we promised them. We can promise that you are going to rank in Google or that you are going to have sales from this page. But during that time, my clients were mostly focused on quantity rather than quality and results. They were trying to stick everything, to throw everything at the wall, hoping that something would stick. This was not the type of client we wanted to work with. So I had to dial it back. I put in place some pre-qualifying interviews. And one of the questions in, in the brief I now send to our clients is, why do you need content for, or why do you need my help with strategy for? What do you want to do? When a client tells you what their goals are, you realize if they're a good match for you. Yeah, good question indeed, because most of them, they have no idea. They just throw there something like, oh, I want to rank first on Google, or I want to create content because my competition is creating as well. But that's not a goal. And yeah, that's a very good and unexpected filter question since it can be so general. But I feel that 
those that are focused on actually achieving some goals will literally answer that question properly. And after you filter down all these clients during the onboarding process, and since this onboarding can be quite time consuming. Do you use a questionnaire before they book a call with you or you ask these questions during the first call that you have with them? Well, <clears throat> I send a questionnaire first because this helps me to pre-qualify them. But lately I've been really lucky because most of our clients, whether they are for writing services or for strategy, they are inbound leads. Well, we never use the ads and I don't plan to use them anytime soon. So most of the clients that I work with come after reading some of my content. They already know what I do. They already know the approaches I take, and they already know that I'm not running a content mill or a strategy advisory business that's based on growth hacks. So they pretty much qualify themselves before sending the first email or before I have to send them a questionnaire. But I still have the occasional odd duck, but I've learned to say no. For instance, and this is rather funny, I think it's the first client I turned out for strategy services. It was years ago before the pandemic, and he wanted to build a, uh, a gadget that used light, I think is the name for it, to sanitize and disinfect gaming consoles because he was a big gamer, but he was also a bit of a germaphobe. So I tried to explain to him without charging him for consulting that perhaps this is a very narrow niche. And there are very few gamers out there who are also germaphobes. His idea was that the gamers are pretty much glued to their consoles and they eat there and they drink a lot of sodas there and their consoles get sticky and they have all those crumbs and grease in them. And he wanted to find a way to, to help clean them. And again, this was before the pandemic. No one was a clean freak back then. And I tried to tell them, listen, if you're a germaphobe, then you shouldn't eat on your game console. So, but I don't do that. There you go. <laughs> you don't need that. So yeah, we still have this uh, this request coming in and I try to stay away from businesses I don't believe because it's really hard to advise someone on how to grow knowing that they will not grow. Yeah, indeed. And that's a big thing because not accepting to work with everyone can help your business a lot. And it's something that especially those at the beginning struggle with to say no to certain type of clients that. They literally don't do anything about their personal business growth and so on. So you see basically a big no when you try to scale back your agency. And after that, you realize that you want to build something more and start to create your personal brand. And this thing, like being open to opportunities, being open to things that don't align with your future plans. How do you manage to stay open to those? And how do you manage to actually say no to something that might be quite hard at first? It is hard. It is hard because I've been doing this for so long and it's already a very comfortable place for me. I have all these processes in place. I have all this social proof. It's not easy, but it's somewhat comfortable to run an agency. But I wanted a new challenge and I realized that I need to be open to opportunities so that I don't lose my motivation because simply starting to write about what I like and sending out a weekly newsletter in a sort of weird and unexpected way brought back more motivation for my agency work as well because I was able to carve a little bit of time for what I'm passionate about. I was able to also channel some of that passion back into my agency work. And since building a personal brand also involves networking a lot and meeting a lot of people, mostly online, like we're talking now, but still, it's uh, it, they are important connections. 
I I managed to expand my horizons and and have a bit more fluency, if you will, even in my agency work. Because you mentioned niching down before. I'm not really a big fan of finding a very narrow niche for yourself. I believe that having a bird's eye view over several industries can help you when you work within a particular industry. Since I've been working with clients all over the place, from Etsy shop owners to cybersecurity and complicated tech companies, I'm able to draw a little bit of all of those experiences and all that knowledge and channel it back into a single industry. It's weird. You don't think about it this way. You don't think that working, that learning a bit about cybersecurity can help you with your work in I don't know, writing about uh, office spaces. These are two examples of clients we handle at the moment in my agency, right? But I think everything's connected. And if you were, if you write about these remote work trends and how to bring back these to the office or on the contrary, how to support them to work from wherever they please, you have to touch on cybersecurity because cybersecurity when working remotely is very important. And it's very hard to implement if you don't have all the laptops and all the gadgets in the same office at the same time. So pretty much everything we as a team or myself have worked on in my agency and in my new newsletter are sort of intertwined and they draw on each other. I believe that having a worldview in itself helps you in whatever you do as a, <clears throat> as an online marketer or solopreneur. Yeah, I love that perspective since... Almost all my career, I was in the same place. Like I was juggling to so many type of clients, so many industries. I learned a lot for everyone. And as you, I was able to grasp a bit from there, a bit from the other client. But in the same time, at least for my field of activity, like web design, what I struggled with was every time basically starting from scratch a new website. So I wasn't having the same type of, for example, the same the same website structure, the same thing. So I wasn't able to productize. But when you apply strategy like you do, that's a totally different stories because you can have this, as you mentioned, bird's eye view and you can grab all those insights and such. And when it comes to strategy itself, how do you work with that? How are you getting paid for thinking? Because in the age that you are living, when you wake up and... 100 new AI apps appear overnight and everyone is scared that AI will take their jobs. Probably the future is for those paid to think. And you're already doing that. You already get paid to think. And for those listening, what will be your advice or suggestions to embrace this change and to leverage technology in order to start strategizing rather than executing? First of all, I love that phrase, being paid to think. And uh, I agree. I think that critical thinking is a skill that AI hasn't developed yet. So uh, we've got that edge on it. As for my advice, I think almost every one of us, almost any person that has some professional experience has also been a strategist at some point. And if you look back on the things you've done, you can perhaps advise others. But in order to do that, you need to have a solid background. I did have a few jobs as a CMO, a marketing manager. I was in charge of creating strategies using regular teams and in-house and all that. And I realized I can draw on that experience and on my experience of working with individual clients in various capacities to advise clients right now. So I think that pretty much everything I do right now has a strategy component. 
even if it's just content writing, you have to understand the strategy behind the client's, the client's brief. It's pretty much similar to what you do when you build a website. You have to be able to understand the strategy of your client. One of the reasons I managed to have more success than even I expected as a freelancer was that I wasn't just a writer. I was also a marketing strategist. So I didn't just deliver something that you could you could easily read. I delivered something that converted because I could understand your strategy behind. Pretty much like what you do when you build website. You have to understand your client's strategy. You have to understand their goals with that website. What do they want to sell? To whom do they want to sell? And so on. So you can build the website they need, not just something that looks pretty and that clicks in all the right places, you know? But to work as a business and marketing strategist, I believe you need something more. You know, there's a lot of free advice out there, a lot of it in any format. Even ChatGPT can spew some advice for you if you write the right prompt. But from my client session, I discovered that too much information is not always a good idea. You end up in this paralysis. You don't know what, what to choose. And I've had during my strategy sessions, I've had a lot of clients ask me about four or five tactics that are very popular on a certain social media network or telling me that this guy, he's a widely popular creator. He suggested to do this. What do you think? Should I do that? So to work as a marketing strategist, I believe in first and foremost, you need a very analytical mind. You need not to, to fall into every trend or fad and to help your clients zero in on what they need. Because the advice out there is good for some people, not for all. It doesn't matter if there's a if there's a very popular creator who tells you that you can grow in these three simple steps. They come from a different business. They come with different goals. You have to understand, you have to know and to analyze what you can take from the free advice you see out there and even from the paid advice, why not? And what works for you? So I think the biggest part of my work as a strategist is finding the overlap between what works and what works for my clients, because there's no one size fits all in, in strategy. Definitely agree a lot with that. Not only that every business is different, but every person is different. And especially when you want to build something around yourself, like you do, like building a personal brand, you have certain skills, you have certain characteristics that are unique to you. And to apply something that works for Justin Wells, because he's the first person that comes to mind when it comes to solopreneurship, like that works for him because he has come from a different background, come from a different perspective, probably was one of the first on LinkedIn, for example, and such, but won't work for us. And that's a huge one. And trying to copy every single person that we see online, it's a certain way to failure. And that's when strategy comes in. And when you use this approach, these strategies to guide clients, you take it a step further after, for example, between coaching and consulting. In what category you fit in? You're a coach or a consultant? I'm a consultant right now. So what I do is a client comes to me with a very specific problem. It's usually related to growth or to building additional revenue streams. My clients are very smart, very skilled people, but at some point they, they lose the clarity they need to create a clear roadmap for their business. So uh, I help them gain that clarity. I give them a roadmap. And of course, I can be there for them if they need 
additional calls or if they need my support implementing what I suggest for them. Because remember, I also have a marketing agency, so we can take over a lot of things, a lot of things off their plate. But the core of my work is consulting. Absolutely. Awesome. Love to hear that since there's quite a big misconception here. And speaking of misconception, can you think of a big myth that applies to strategizing that you want to debunk? I think I'm going to go with a myth that I actually believed in after right after college when I got my first job in, in marketing and PR, that once you have a strategy in place, this is like the Bible that you are going to follow for the next thousand of years, you know? But uh, the world moves much faster today. So I think that no matter how good your strategy or your roadmap is today, you have to think of it as a living document. You're going to try some things. Some of them are going to pan out. Others are going to fall flat and you need to adopt, adapt and improve as you. Because for instance, if I work with a client and I suggest you should go to LinkedIn to build your personal brand, that's very big right now for professional creators to, to use LinkedIn as an organic growth platform. This advice may be good today, but if LinkedIn decides to change the algorithm next month and the organic reach is, as, but is about as high as it is right now on Facebook, then they need to rethink everything. So I, I think the biggest myth that still lives with us and shouldn't is that marketing strategies are one and done. You do it and you can't forget about it until next year or within three years or something like that. That being said, I do believe that you need to have a clear roadmap and goals that, that you create for the long run. You need to have a vision, if you will, or a few principles that, that stay put, but not the actual marketing strategy. That can change from week to week, if you will. And it's important to allow yourself that flexibility, not to think that, oh man, I have to go back and change everything. And I had this solid plan. Well, it was solid yesterday. Today, you need another plan. You need to rethink things. And that's okay. That's how things work. This is marketing today. Indeed. And that's valid in so many aspects of a business since being adaptable and being able to pivot if the environment change it's what separates the successful business owners from the rest. And yeah, it's just the way it is. Like we cannot start to cry ourselves that, oh my God, Google algorithm change, LinkedIn algorithm change, Facebook change. Yes, but something else is there. You need to try, you need to pivot, you need to change things in order to survive. And like today, like indeed AI will change a lot of things. And some people that don't adapt and they simply start to focus continuously on delivering things that are easily replaceable, it'll turn into commodities. And going that path and running a copywriting business as well with your agency, how do you think will impact AI, that part of the business? Well, right about now, I'm pretty proud of myself for what I did back in 2018 when I decided not to work with clients that were looking for cheap bulk work because AI can easily take that over. But when it comes to good copywriting and good content writing, you still need a human writer. I don't know whether that's going to change in the next years. I do believe that at least for a decade, copywriters and content writers are going to be in demand as long as they are good, of course, because even if they use AI as a cognitive assistant, you still need someone with a strategy mind behind, behind your copy. You need someone who understands your goals. You need someone who can play with the words a bit, not not have that robot speak that's perfect and that Grammarly congratulates you for, but that doesn't really sound human because 
when we talk to our friends, we don't look for perfection. We look for clarity. And we look for a certain playfulness of our words so that our writing or our talk is also enjoyable, not just functional. So, uh, yes, I think that copywriters and content writers are actually more than writers. It's actually why I I don't hire people who have a degree in English literature, for instance. I usually go for people who have a marketing PR background because it's easier to work with them and they know how to emulate different tones of voices. They understand different clients' industries and so on. And this is a bit hard to replicate with AI. At this, <laughs> I'm not making any guarantees for the next uh, 15 years, but I do believe that for the next uh, decade, if you're a good writer with a solid understanding of your craft and of marketing practices and of changing industry needs, you're good. Thanks for sharing your perspective on this. Indeed, I truly believe those that are adapting and leveraging AI to actually help them instead of relying on it to simply produce mass content, those will be the last one to be replaced. Because probably at some point, and I think this is a good thing, all of us in different aspects will be replaced, but in the same time, we'll be allowed to produce more meaningful work and or to actually be focused on living life and robots will take over and do the actual execution for us. But who knows what future will actually unfold. Yeah, well, you know, there's always, I think every generation has a bit of a scare with a certain technology that will take over for us and leave us all jobless. It was the Industrial Revolution in England that, that farmers protested about. It was electricity that people protested about because they thought it was harmful. And right now it's AI. But if you really zoom out a bit, you have to take into consideration the fact that by 2070, the population of the world will actually start to decrease. You'll see that we'll have... A lot of retired people who no longer work and fewer young people who are still working. So the robots taking over for some of us is actually a good thing. We won't have as many workers as we need after 2017. I'm really looking forward to see what future unfolds. And going back a bit, because you mentioned that you work with us with remote workers. How's your process on finding them? And how do you manage to outsource effectively? Because Personally, for me, it's sometimes a challenge, even that I do this for quite a long and being remote myself as well. And I'm really curious how that works for you and what advice you have for those that are trying to outsource their parts of their work. Well, it's still a challenge. I'll lead with that because it takes a bit of trial and error to find the right person for the right job. But the key is not to get discouraged. If the first hire didn't work out, there are tens of people out there who may. When I first started outsourcing, I also started on freelancing website. But because the process is a bit clunky and very hard to personalize to my own needs, I moved on to finding people in Facebook groups or on LinkedIn, because I think it helps if I can interact with them for a bit before telling them that maybe I need help with something. And once I find a few candidates, a few candidates, my process is to send, to send a questionnaire for them where they tell me a bit about their background and how that background is relevant to, to what I do. Then we move on to a Zoom call and then a trial assignment. What I do to make sure this process runs as smoothly as possible, although there are still a few crinkles to iron out, there are a few things actually. The first one is that I don't negotiate on, on what they ask. If I try to pay them 
as much as they want because I want them to be comfortable and happy with our work together. So if someone is out of my budget, I simply say that, okay, maybe later, but I don't try to lower their fees. I, I don't work with people that I pay hourly because I really don't want to be counting minutes and I don't want them to to worry about how it looks on the dashboard if perhaps they took too long doing this or too little doing that. This is actually something that I don't do because I don't like it myself. I had one or two projects that were paid by the hour and I hated it with a passion because I work very fast and I feel that's a bit unfair because you shouldn't be paying me for the hour it takes me to write something or to create something for you. You should be paying me for the years I took to learn how to do it really fast. So I don't want to do that to other people. And uh, the last thing I do is that the first project that I work with, that I work on with the new freelancer is always something for one of my brands. It's not client work. It's something that doesn't have a deadline or maybe it doesn't have a, an important deadline for me. The freelancer still has a deadline, but it's something that uh, if it's not done right, it's not a big problem for my business. I can always have someone swoop in and someone else swoop in and take over the work. Uh, spoiler alert, that's usually me because <laughs> I'll take over. But I don't have to juggle client deadlines and my own deadlines at the same time. So I try to test them a bit on, on my own brands and see how they how they fare there. I like that approach. And I love that you mentioned the hourly thing because there are two aspects of it. First, if you're too fast like you, you penalize yourself. Being too fast, you're not getting paid uh, your worth. Being too slow, you penalize your client since they'll pay you more than you actually provide as a value to them. And being paid on value and on deliverables, it's way, way better. And something that I want to switch as well with those that I outsource with and still paying them by hour, since they're one of those two categories, either too slow or either too fast. And it's not fair for both. Continue on this topic of outsourcing and especially working remote. How do you maintain communication in place and how do you manage to actually make sure the deadlines are achieved in terms of communication, in terms of making sure that everything is on point with them? How do you manage that? Well, I always start with a very detailed brief, especially for freelancers that are just starting out with me. <clears throat> With time, they don't need that much direction. They know what our standards are and what I need for them to provide. They know that I'm very strict with deadline. This is one of the things I, I don't compromise on, especially when it comes to client work. It's very important to me that all our deadlines are met and, and no work is delayed. I try to keep it simple. We communicate via email. Or I also have an account in Asana that I use occasionally to distribute work among my team. But for us, email is mostly enough for a brief chat communication if they need any help. And one other thing that, that I do and that has helped a lot with, with retaining contractors for longer is making sure that they feel welcome and supported. So every time I assign them something, I tell them that, listen, if you need my phone number so you can contact me on WhatsApp for a quick chat, that's okay. If you need to jump on a quick call for me to explain something in more detail, that's okay too. Just if you don't feel like you have everything you need to finish this project successfully, tell me. Just start on it and hoping maybe somehow you'll get it right. If you don't have everything you need, tell me and I'm here to assist you always. So I try to be by their side and, and tell them that we're working together. Even though we're remote, sometimes 
thousands of miles apart, it doesn't mean that we can't work together. We can even work together at the same time in a Google Doc. And apart from Asana and email, do you use any other particular tools to manage your business? I rely a lot on Sendable for social media management. There was a time when my agency did a lot of social media management and marketing work for clients. So we needed a very powerful tool that helped us schedule and monitor conversations across a lot of accounts without having to log in and log out for each and every client. So I still use that for our own profiles. I use ConvertKit for email and uh, let me think, what else? I uh, use a, a few AI tools. I used uh, Outranking for AI writing. It's a nice co-pilot, if you will, for SEO writing. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it, at least for solutions that I use constantly. I have, for the people who subscribe to my newsletter, I have a really long PDF detailing every solution that we use, including web hosting and VPN solution and all that. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback about it because what I did was go in and also offer some tips on how to use all of these solutions better than you'd find online. Even Google search, I think that if your Google Foo is strong, you already got some leverage over your competitors. No, really. I mean, I see you smiling, but a lot of a strategist's work is knowing how to Google stuff. Yeah, I smile because I'm on the same side. Like, I know how valuable to search on Google. The biggest client I ever had told me that, Gib, I hire you since you didn't know the solution right away to the project that I assigned you to, but you managed to find a solution for it fast by Google searching that. And that's a huge skill. And indeed, it, Totally agree with you. And same apply, for example, with this tool that appear like ChatGPT and such. You need to know how to use a tool properly in order to leverage entirely. Like everyone can search, but not everyone can search properly. And since you are at this part of tools and things to use and use things properly, I want to challenge you to something to create. You can can call it framework or you can call it a step-by-step process for those that want to hire others or to or want to outsource parts of the work, if you were starting this process now, like selecting the work that you want to outsource, searching for the right candidates and so on, what would be your step-by-step process to do that? Right. Well, before looking for actual freelancers or remote workers to help me, I'd spend a little bit of time, anywhere from a week to a month documenting all the processes that I want to outsource and the way I tackle them. It's important to have strong SOPs in place because otherwise you won't know who you're looking for. A virtual assistant, for instance, can do a lot of things for you, but you have to look for the person that specialized in your most important process. So I think documentation is the most important step. You need to know what you are outsourcing. I know it seems obvious, like for instance, I need someone to help me edit image for social media. Right, but what type of images? What format? How often do you need them? What's the deadline? I mean, how how long do they have since they received a brief from you until they have to deliver? You need to have all of these things in. Once you have that, you can move on to your favorite platform. Freelancing websites like Fiverr or Upwork or even freelancer.com are still very popular. I haven't used them in a while. I rely on uh, Facebook groups. If you search for anything you need, you'll find a Facebook group or a LinkedIn group. That's also a good option. 
And then I start with shortlisting a few candidates, ask them to go through a questionnaire, a sort of a pre-qualifying, pre-interview thing, where you ask them about their background, ask them to send samples of their work, perhaps even testimonials from or recommendations from previous clients. Ask them for their fee, of course, if you don't already have a set fee that you want to share with, and then move on to do one or two test jobs, see how they how they fare in, in real life. Because you may often be surprised by the difference between their portfolio and their actual output for you. It's not always, uh, you have to keep in mind that everyone leads with their best work <clears throat> and that their, the quality of the work is not always consistent, at least not for everyone, you know. And as I mentioned before, I would also make sure to be by their side and support them, especially if you're looking for a long-term relationship with, with a VA or, I don't know, whatever type of remote worker you want to hire. It's important to understand that you've spent a lot of time in those processes. You know them very well. They seem very easy for you. They're not that easy for someone who sees them for the first time. So spend a bit of time with them, guide them through the work. It's an important investment. It does take time, but it pays off in the long run. I love that final advice since that part of being patient and being able to actually support the person that you want to hire, especially if after those early test projects, you realize it might be a good fit. It's extremely important. I've been in that situation and in both, like not being patient and probably losing a really good candidate and being patient and guide the person until was able to grasp in all the information and all the workflow that you have that they weren't used to, it's it's a game changer, no matter how overused this word is. And uh, yeah, in terms of doing this, what's their biggest benefit that you see above the time-saving part? I learned a lot from my team. I really do. I mean, in the beginning, I... I did a lot of mentoring for new writers, and it's very tempting to see this as a one-way street. They learn from me, but but that's not always the case. Since this is creative work, I found a lot of amazing writers. They taught me a lot about how to approach the research for a project, or or how to edit my work, or or how to promote it. And I actually had writers that worked for me and then moved on to open their own agencies. And I found that really nice and empowering. I actually felt fulfilled on their behalf. I was really happy for them. And uh, yes, I, following them and seeing them mature into amazing writers has been an eye-opening experience for me. It showed me how much work you need to put into this, but also what are the prerequisites to being a good writer? Because you can work a lot, you can practice a lot, but you still need to have a few skills and a few natural proclivities to start with, if you will. So I yes, I think that the biggest benefit is what I learned from them too. And I also have had people help me with a lot of administrative tasks and uh, tasks that I thought were very complicated because I really hate bureaucracy and everything that has to do with, I don't know, uh, the nitty gritty and time consuming and spreadsheets and stuff. And they, they showed me simpler processes and much faster processes. And it, it was really an eye-opening, a game changer if you will, because I found as you grow and you mature, it's it's important to move from, this is simple, I can do it myself. I'll just take one, two days to learn it and then one, two days to do it myself and switch on to, to the other side. That's perhaps the real definition of solopreneurship. When you say, listen, I don't have three days to do this. I'm going to work with you because you already know how to do this. 
and it's an investment for me. I'm going to I'm going to focus on what I know how to do. I'm going to stay in my zone of genius. You're going to stay in your zone of genius, and together we can do things much better and much faster. And that's a powerful mindset shift, since a lot of those that are executing everything by themselves are not having enough time to actually work on their business and actually evolve and build something much more meaningful, something that can grow at a certain level. And yeah, and that comes, of course, with charging more to be able to outsource part of the work to those that are way better than you, way faster. And as you mentioned, they have the zone of genius where you don't and you can focus on your own things. And if I may, what are the things that you are still doing yourself and those that you're outsource all of the strategy myself for for my own brands and for my clients i do all of the client management myself i outsource a lot of the writing work for my agency i do write my newsletters myself because i don't want to give that up it's my passion and it's what i love doing and i also i outsource everything related to graphic design web design I really suck at that and I have no patience to come pixels and all that. I have no eye for colors. So this is definitely better outsource. And I also, if I ever have to create graphs and charts and something that has to do with spreadsheets and Excel, this is outsourced. I'm also thinking about uh, outsourcing part of my research because a lot of research goes into my, my newsletter, but I just haven't found the right formula for this because I fear that that if I change the approach to research, perhaps it will mean also a change in, in the way my, my newsletters come out and perhaps my readers will feel that there's a different approach and a different tone. It's still marquee. I'm not touching that yet. And uh, perhaps in, even inbox management, because I have so many inboxes, so many email addresses that and so much spam. I, I need a bit of help with that. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And uh, speaking of strategy, can you please tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to work with you? So they can find me on adrianatica.com. They can also find me on iden.pro. That's pro. This is my agency website. And on adrianatica.com, they can also subscribe to my newsletter. This is the free strategy advice that comes into their inbox every Thursday. Speaking of which, my, my newsletter... It's almost out there. Just two more hours to, yes. Awesome. And I'll put the links in the show notes as well. And to wrap things up, now is your time to create this challenge for our listeners. To have a head start into creating a strategy for their own brand. Since the personal brand is so powerful nowadays, I want you to give them a challenge that will jumpstart the process of creating a strategy what they can do in less than 24 hours to achieve that? The easiest approach and one that can be easily talk, tackled within 24 hours would start with a SWOT analysis. That's S-W-O-T. And these letters come from weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So within 24 hours, you can simply list all your strengths, all your weaknesses, all your opportunities, and all your threats. You have to keep in mind that typically the strengths and the weaknesses come from inside your business, from what you can provide and what you can't provide to your clients, whereas the opportunities and the threats come from the outside, from the economy, from legislation, from your competition, from your industry, from your technologies and so on. So list all of these things, strengths, opportunities, 
weaknesses and threats, and then find the axis that better suits your, your business. Should you go on, should you bet on strengths and opportunities, or would your time be better spent in addressing your weaknesses and your threats? This always depends on the industry you're in. It always depends on the economic climate, but it's a very good exercise to, to kickstart your, because if you know that you already have very strong very strong skills or very strong products in place. And if the market's favorable, if there's already a lot of demand for your product or for your service, you can always choose the SOX, the strength and opportunity. But if you still feel like you've got some work to do and you need to polish your product some more, you need to come up with a high ticket off. And if you feel like your industry is on shaky ground, especially given the economic context right now, Perhaps it's better to start addressing the threats and the weaknesses first before building up your strengths and your opportunities. So thank you so much. That's an amazing challenge. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to hear what our listeners come up with. <laughs> Just tag me if you, if you post it anywhere on social media. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Adriana. This was amazing. Thank you too, Gabe. I really had a lot of fun. Your questions are always very insightful. Yeah. Glad to hear that. Hopefully our listeners took a lot of notes and start applying since you share so, so much value. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure to check the show notes where you'll find direct links to the tools and resources mentioned in this episode and much more. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe to your favorite podcast station to not miss when we drop the next one. We have lots of exciting guests and surprises for you coming up. This is your host, Gabe Marushka with the Nomad Solopreneur Show. Until next week, Pura Vida!